This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This week, Anne Crabtree on her powerful designs for The Handmaid's Tale and how they became an important symbol of protest. Plus, veteran performer Bill Beretta on the art and mastery behind one of our most iconic institutions, The Muppets. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hey everyone, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Thanks so much for joining us again here on Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original. So I grew up watching The Muppets, and my kids are growing up watching The Muppets. This beloved series and cast of characters has entertained generations for decades. Later on the show, I get to talk to one of the legendary puppeteers, Bill Beretta. He's featured in a new documentary called Muppet Guys Talking. Bill Beretta has created and brought to life many Muppets for many decades, and perhaps one of the most famous Swedes that we've ever had on the show, The Swedish Chef. But first... Season 2 of the highly anticipated series The Handmaid's Tale premieres on April 25th. Season 1 of the show was based on the 1985 novel by Margaret Atwood. It's set in a near-future USA where fertility rates have collapsed. The few remaining fertile women are held captive by the new Gilead government as handmaids. They are forced to bear children for the commander and their wives or sent to work at the colonies. Is this what freedom looks like? What will happen when I get out? There probably is no out. Gilead is within you. We can't explain this away. They will say that we're part of the resistance. If you'd shown that girl one ounce of kindness, she would never have left. I will find every person involved, and then they will be punished. You will love the Lord thy God with all your heart, or you will feel the pain of his judgment, for that is his love. I'm honored to talk to award-winning costume designer Anne Crabtree. Ms. Crabtree has previously designed costumes for shows including The Sopranos, Masters of Sex, and Westworld. The Handmaid's Tale resonated in large part due to a sense of real political timeliness. And the incredible creations by Anne Crabtree, most notably that red dress and the white handmaid's bonnet, have taken on an incredible power outside of the series. It's been adopted by protesters worldwide as a statement of women's rights. I asked Miss Crabtree if she remembers the first time she heard of her designs being used in a political protest. Oh my gosh, I, I never forget because it's so powerful when it happens. The first people to reach out to me were the incredibly strong women in Texas. And they were protesting in the Senate for women's rights, abortion rights. So that happened within a few days, less than a week of me going back to the States from Canada. Um, 
they contacted me via Twitter and said, how do we do this? We'd like to use this as a means of protest. And I was so honored, and I still am honored. They were a part of NARAL, N-A-R-A-L. And uh, since then, you're absolutely right, um, women everywhere, and men, but a lot of women uh, worldwide are using it uh, as a means to have a voice. It's so interesting because the dresses at the same time in, in the series, they sort of symbolize the repression of women and keeping them in order. But now they've become, a, there's a sense of empowerment around them. I can imagine a group of protesters coming towards, you know, a senator with that. And, and there's a real sort of empowerment, right? Oh, yeah. It's amazing that what started as a design to oppress women for a fiction, well, as Margaret Atwood calls it, speculative fiction. Her fiction came from very, very real scenarios and histories. But what started out for me as a means to oppress women, for that to turn, you know, all the way around and become a means of, you know, expressing yourself and not being oppressed is so beautiful. It's such a, an amazing outcome that I would have never visualized myself <laughs> to be honest with you yeah it's like it's there's some poetry in that because there's that line in in the series they shouldn't have given us uniforms if they didn't want us to be an army and it kind of feels like that's what happened truly with your work thank you you know that when when i hear anybody say it and just now as you've said it it gives me chills and it, it makes me so emotional because it's it's something beyond me uh christina it's you know i showed up uh, and I gave it my all to create something specific to the show and try to make it current and meaningful to the show. And that it's having another lifeline all its own is just kismet. I can't take credit. You know, uh, it's, a, it's someone taking inspiration and making it their own, which is always the best. Like so many, Handmaid's Tale made a huge impact on me last season and very notably your powerful costumes and artistry. But one of the wonderful byproducts was the discovery of your Instagram. It, it's like a mood board of, of your work that we could follow along. Um, at, at your thinking, there's images with the hashtag homework, and it's like Bianca Jagger and religious groups and research. First of all, thank you for that. It's so interesting. And... <laughs> Then um, what imagery has inspired you while wrapping your head around Gilead? My goodness. So my, my photos, my visuals tend to be all over the place uh, by design. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm inspired first and foremost by nature. Uh, not only for The Handmaid's Tale, but I've noticed that tends to be my starting point uh, for any kind of job, and usually it become it's um it's about color, it's about the shape of things in nature because it's so perfect, the way that it is. You know, you don't have to change anything. And right. so my start for the Handmaid's Tale season one was because uh, or, or starting with nature, and then from there I'm all over the place. I go into every early part of the decade so that. I can combine those elements to create, hopefully, Christina, a neoclassical design so that it fits uh, a kind of every man 
vibe. And so it speaks to many, many different people. Um, there is fashion stuff only because I came from that background and, you know, some of the beautiful parts of the early 60s and the early 40s and even the 1900s, uh, industrial clothing, all of that entered into the realm of Gilead. Well, tell me about the what has become iconic, the red handmaid's dress, what the symbolic different meanings of that creation. So the dress itself, I knew that I wanted something that would have a lot of uh, movement to it so that it wasn't just a dress hanging on a body. You know, these are clothes that the characters have to wear forever in every frame. Like it never changes unless the weather gets colder, then we add layers. So it couldn't be, you know, it was twofold. Christina, it had to be something that felt very normal, which is strange to say because it's a bright red dress and these bright white wings on top of the head. But it still had to come from a place, an attitude of normal, a new normal, even though it felt quite unnormal politically. And then, so I wanted it to feel like, almost like putting on a t-shirt or a sweatshirt and jeans. It just happens to be a red dress. I considered myself, when I was sketching, to be a commander saying, okay, well, it needs to be a color we can see coming from very far away so we can control these. Interesting. Oh, yeah. And uh, let me control their waist because we need to know if they're pregnant or not because they will get banished if they don't provide, you know, a society to build up Gilead. Right. Have you worked from any sort of religious symbolism or cults or so as well? I did. I looked all over the place. And so my impetus there was I am someone who has a very varied background. Uh, my parents are, you know, Okinawan and American. Uh, my father's white. My mother is indigenous Okinawan. And so my background, and then I grew up in Kentucky. Mm, <laughs> so there yeah. is that you know, uh, spiritualism, religiousness of Christianity, Buddhism, Shintoism, which is not a religion, but a way of life that was ingrained in me without even really speaking about it. Um, and then combine that with growing up in Kentucky, you are exposed to so many different types of religion. I thought I need to infuse that into this world. It, it is it is very much uh, dipped into the waters of religion because that's a part of the story. That's a part of the vibe. Control the masses via politics and religion, basically, right? right. And so, but the flow of the address, the way that it kicks forward, this like flap of fabric that moves in the wind actually came from a priest in Milan oh. that I sketched in. I know, it's, it's so weird. You never know these influences, where they're going to come up. You know, I sketched that in 2000 in the tiniest little sketch pad that I had, you know, in my backpack. Mm -hmm. And it was a, um, a priest walking through the Duomo and his fabric was kicking forward. And I just thought, and he was moving so rapidly through this giant church. I thought that is the most beautiful thing. And somehow I sketched it and that became the flap of fabric in front of the handmaids. I just have to want to ask you about these very striking leather mouthpieces, the sort of t 
to really oppress well, and keep <laughs> the women silent. I'm I'm wondering if that's some sort of torture device that you have had seen somewhere or or so much. Honestly, Christina, it just comes from the script. It's all it's all script related, and I knew that anything design wise has to have its roots in something very old. And then, you know, how do you make that modern and everyday? Well, it's a, it's a leather gag. Leather would be something, you know, I'm also thinking from a design standpoint, what will be used again and again and again, again, because there's very little resources in Gilead, they have to reuse everything. And so leather felt like something that would be durable. We also looked at canvas, but something about the leather, it was we were able to distress it really beautifully for camera and it felt harsh. It felt like something like a muzzle you would put on an animal. Right. right. So it, it, it is a torture device because women are not allowed to express themselves. And it also felt a bit, you know, sadomasochist, right? We didn't want it to look like a sex gag. Uh, so we had to be very careful in the design, but I loved it because basically they let me do what I wanted and what I wanted was just something really clean that was terrifying. So now we are approaching the much-awaited season two, and we know from um, trailers and pictures that this is, this is going to be a lot in the colonies. And going back to your fantastic Instagram, I've, I saw a few things you put out about sort of agriculturally old pictures of women working fields and things. Can you, is there anything you can tell us? A lot of it comes from me growing up in Kentucky and not being raised on a farm, but all my friends were. And we lived in an area that was beautiful cornfields and tobacco fields. And it's still inspiring to me to this day. So a lot of the color and a lot of the, you know, visual poetry came from that place of me growing up, mm -hmm. up in Kentucky. And then, of course, the first image I ever pulled for that, for the colonies, was a Van Gogh painting which had nothing to do with the costumes and everything to do with the landscape. Oh. You know, it's a place of radiation. It's a place where nothing grows. It's such an amazing metaphor um, <laughs> for Gilead or the outskirts of Gilead called the colonies. And, and then from there, where I went inspiration-wise was, as you said, photographs that are period um, of, you know, women in Russia, uh, early communist propaganda posters, you know, um, working to build a country. I mean, it's all kind of perfect, right, for the colonies. Right. I also looked at a very modern day, present day migrant workers. And these sort of women in the colonies in contrast with the aunts, for example, which are very military, right? That looks like, I'm supposing you have taken a lot of ins military inspiration from those sort of leather jackets, big belts type of thing. Yeah. So I, you know, absolutely for the ants in, in Gilead season one, their fabric actually, that whole idea came from World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, and I found out in uh, this season two that Canada actually uses the very same fabric for their own military uniforms that I'm using on the ants. Mm. <laughs> it comes from the same place. And for season two in the 
the colonies, there are ants and there are guardians. And I wanted to do a kind of country mouse, city mouse thing between Gilead and the colonies. The colonies are an extension of Gilead. They're the outskirts. There's a lot of radiation. So even though the ants and the guardians that work there and the horses, you know, the radiation is so bad that they all, including the animals, are wearing masks against the radiation and the unwomen, the women who are there, are not. They're exposed to radiation. So you, I wanted to think, you know, maybe, maybe just maybe these ants and guardians, it's kind of a demotion for them to work out there oh. to guard the or the, excuse me to guard the unwomen finally I, I just want to ask you it's sort of a, a big question but in our daily life in your daily life how much when you look at other women other men walking around how much power do you see are we putting into our clothes how much do you think about day to day how people are dressed and what it symbolizes for you you know what's crazy? It it may sound horribly cliche, but I look at people's clothing all the time. But people that I really always notice are the people, the workers, mm -hmm. people that are wearing industrial uniforms, cleaning ladies just yesterday that clean this costume house that I'm working out of, the aprons that they wear, um, the gloves that they use to do their jobs. I think because I come from working class stock, you know, I think I'm always searching. And even through history, I always love an invention. I always love industrialism and clothing, because it's interesting, because it's built for all time. And it's built to solve problems. Do I find that in everybody's clothes? No, <laughs> I think that there's a lot of people who are quite lazy, and including myself some days with getting dressed and but I, the people that I find truly interesting are usually those in working, working situations. I love uniforms. Well, it's what we were saying. There's power in uniforms. There's both power and empowerment and not. It's so true. That's right. It can be, power can be taken away and or given pending the uniform and the symbology surrounding it. What are your projects coming up? So what I'm working on now is so stinking cool. It's called uh, The Last Thing He Wanted, The Last Thing He Wanted. Mm -hmm. And it's an adaptation of a Joan Didion novel. <gasps> and oh, so it's a, exactly, it's a feminist story. And the lead is Anne Hathaway. And the director is Dee Rees. Who, oh, uh, Mudbound. <laughs> Mudbound, so beautiful, strong woman, uh, lead actress and director. And it's set in 1982 and 1984. That's what I'm working on. I'm actually still doing Handmaids and um, prepping this film now. And it's so exciting, Christina. It's going to be really powerful. I mean, it was such a, it's, you know, it's what happened in El Salvador and Nicaragua in the 80s. Well, I can't wait to see both your projects. Um, and thank you so much for taking your time and for your work. This was so interesting. I really appreciate it so much, Christina. Thank you so much to costume designer Anne Crabtree. And make sure to visit her Instagram. It's worth it. Season 2 of The Handmaid's Tale premieres on April 25th on Hulu and on HBO Nordic over here. 
In 1955, Jim Henson created The Muppets, and by the late 70s, more than 235 million people watched weekly worldwide. The Muppet Show is one of the most beloved shows in TV history, beloved by kids and adults alike. Jim Henson, the unique genius, died in 1990. And Frank Oz, one of the original puppeteers working with Henson and also known for Miss Piggy, carried on the Muppet legacy. And now he has made a unique documentary called Muppet Guys Talking. It features five legendary Muppet puppeteers sharing stories about creating their characters, about Henson's legacy, and the incredible art of manipulating the puppets, acting and voicing all at once. I always love hidden things in characters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To get into Grover, for a long time, I went, mm -hmm. <laughs> Johnny's based on my father. I thought he was sort of Frank Sinatra. My father would play Frank Sinatra on Fridays and Sundays. Where? That's in the car. <laughs> People don't time. know that. We totally tried to screw each other over. Oh, all, all the, the time. time. Once I came to work and my desk exploded. <laughs> well, I think about Jim all the time. Everybody on the set knew that they could walk up to Jim and suggest something. In today's world, that's not normal. One of these veteran puppeteers in the movie is our guest, Bill Beretta. He's the baby of the group, as Frank Oz says. He's only been with the Muppets for 27 years. He's the originator of puppets like Peppy the Prawn, Rolf the Dog, and of course, that iconic Muppet, the Swedish Chef, which he inherited from Jim Henson himself. I started by asking Bill Beretta why he thinks the Muppets have resonated for so many decades and with hundreds of millions of viewers. I guess because they're so diverse, the characters, you know, I guess because they're frogs and pigs and worms and bears and cheese and plants and sandwiches, you know, Muppets can be anything. And I think we're all connected to that. And seeing those different characters, those diverse personalities getting along, even though they have issues with each other, and even though they have difficult situations that come up and things that happen and they get in trouble together, they still remain friends and, the, and they look past each other's flaws. And I think that's what people hope their lives can be like, you know, if it could be that simple. But I think that must be part of it. And I think originally with Muppets, I think music was a huge connection for people. You know, everybody has an internal tempo, you know, our heartbeat. We all have our special heartbeat that, to me, that's a part of why we're drawn to music. That's what I believe anyway. But, um, I, yeah, I think music and, and, and uh, being able to love each other, even though we have faults. So you are part of a very, very unique documentary called Muppet Guys Talking. Can you describe it a bit? Well, um, it's really a film about friends who have been working together for years, getting together and sitting around and telling some stories, some that maybe we knew part of, all of, or none of, uh, I think surprising each other with different stories and um, laughing a lot, you know, talking about Jim and his legacy and what the Muppets have done for us and, and hopefully... You know, by doing this, it might spread a, some cheer and a smile. Um, you have so many incredible characters that are yours, but you took over the voice of one that I really have to ask you about because that's, of course, uh, our big 
Uh, we're big fans over here, and that's the Swedish chef. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what it is, do, how it is to do him. Well, you know, the Swedish chef was created by Jim Henson, and I don't know the origins exactly of why he wanted to do this character or why he wanted to create the character. Maybe they were just playing around, and it, it was something silly he was doing, and he was having fun, and he thought this could be funny. I do know that he used to listen to tapes, he had someone create some tapes in Swedish that he would drive to work and he would listen to these tapes and then he would play around with the words and just make it all silly and ridiculous gibberish with hopefully the quality of, or the tones of maybe a Swedish <laughs> chef. So when I started doing it, it was an honor, first of all, but um, I watched everything I could that Jim had done with him and you know, I'm really doing at best an impersonation and trying to get close because most people uh, connect to the voice, mm -hmm. you know, so the quality of the voice is something that everybody wants to know that that's still similar or hopefully, you know, uh, close. So I worked on that, but then it was about trying to figure out, you know, a little bit more about the character and I don't think he's a very complex character, <laughs> but he certainly he he certainly has needs and wants and, and hopes and dreams like everybody else. But it's a lot of fun to perform, too, because it takes two people. And originally it was Jim who operated the body and the head and did the voice and Frank who did the hands. Mm -hmm. And if you notice, the hands, the hands are real. You know, they're not covered in fleece or right. or anything like that which is really fun to begin with. He's really the only Muppet, I think, that has real hands. But the fun of that is that, I don't know if you've ever done this with someone, but, you know, when you ask someone to put their arms behind their back and you stick your hands... Right, behind you, yeah. Yeah, and, and that person does your hands for you. That's what the Swedish chef is like. We, you know, if we're shooting something, we certainly know what the intention of the scene is or what's scripted, but there's a give and take that happens all the time, which we say to each other, let's not be too perfect with this. Feel free to do something that I don't know you're going to do. And I'm going to do something that you don't, and we're going to just follow each other. And I think that's what creates kind of the frantic chaos and the silliness of the chef. If I ask the Swedish chef a few questions, could he answer? Good luck. Yes, <laughs> okay. sure. If you want to try, I don't know if you're going to understand it, but good luck. Yeah. We'll see. I'll, I'll answer in Swedish. So, Swedish chef, do you ever come to Stockholm? Oh, it is too good. It's pretty good to see the beauty. And it's pretty good to see And what's your favorite food? Oh, the chicken. Meatballs? The chicken. Oh, the chi no, no, it's for the chicken. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. That's very good. Thank you. It's it, What you do, what you guys seem to do, is you make it very, very melodic. Tycker du att svenska låter så när vi pratar? Ah. That's beautiful. I, mean, I guess that's what it is. Mm -hmm. There is a melodic tone that, yeah, I think that's, that. there you go. You've just described it perfectly. I think, and you know, I, I, if I can say this, and I don't know this for sure, but Jim was a very musical person. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a musicality to it as well. I think that could have been something that sparked it. I don't know that at all. That's a big guess. But if I had to guess something, <laughs> I would say it's that melodic tone. That, that I think he must have been drawn to. Right. I mean, the Swedish chef is one of the Muppets that really 
everyone, even my kids, I mean, so many, so many decades on, know in all over the world. It's funny how that became, I mean, that's like a lot of American kids' first um, impression of Sweden. <laughs> You're right. Yes, I know, right? Great example. <laughs> well, at least he makes good uh, food. But yes, no, well, I don't know. Does he? No, I, well, maybe I, not. I, no one I, gets to I would be it. concerned about, I, I wouldn't eat anything he made, to be honest. Uh, I, I think he just tries very hard. He's very enthusiastic, but it never goes well. <laughs> another character that I love that you do, I think you created, is also another sort of culturally interesting, and that's Pepe the King Prawn. How did he come up? Well, I, I talk a little bit about it in the movie. He is based on my wife's aunt, who her name is Maria Teresa, and she was from Madrid, Spain, uh, which is where my wife Christina was born. And shortly after I met her, I started to just kind of get this sense of the, a very interesting way that she used to speak English. And she didn't speak a lot of English, but she would just always end her the things that she would say with okay. She would say, uh, we got to turn on the TV, okay? <laughs> you know, and I, and I would have to agree. I mean, there was no real <laughs> question of any kind. But what's funny is in my wife's family, there I think are three Maria Teresas. And over the years, my wife's aunt, who Pepe is based on, became known as Maria Teresa okay. <laughs> because that's how she spoke all the time. <laughs> Um, so really he's based on her, he's based on her vocally, you know, the way she would speak, uh, he's a very mischievous kind of character who generally just is looking to get his, you know, he loves a lot of, you know, that term swag, uh, where you get free stuff all the time. Um, so he's about getting ahead in life, even though he has his little barriers, his little language barrier. He's a much smaller puppet, right? For you to manipulate. Thank goodness, yes. But you must have incredible arm strength. I was thinking about that watching the documentary when they were showing some all of you. I mean, that must be a workout. Well, it's interesting. It is it is tiring, that's for sure. I mean, because you're you're not only moving your arm, you're also moving your fingers in your hand, uh, because you're making them talk and their heads and you know, you're creating behavior with them. So it is tiring and you can only go for so long, but the strength actually, I believe, comes from the back because you want your arm to be loose. Mm. You know, you don't want it to be stiff and tight. So you don't really want this kind of huge muscular arm. (laughs) You tend to let that relax and let the back muscles support the weight of what you're doing, what you're holding up. Right. And for 26 years, that's a long time. Yeah, yeah. I guess we maybe maybe we grow some extra bones or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> I don't know how it works, but we endure it basically. I guess. You mentioned, of course, uh, Jim Henson and his spirit. Uh, his sort of being is really all over the Muppets and and what you have done. Um, tell me a little bit about his aura over the whole Muppet world. Well, it's so clearly a part of the Muppets even today. Um, What he created, the way he worked, the way he treated people continues to flow through the other performers, through the writers, through the workshop, through the producers, through the cameramen, through the crew. You know, there are people that worked with him that we sometimes end up working with. And 
Yep. It's, it's always, it's interesting. No matter what crew I work with, with the Muppets, I, I always, at least from someone, if not more, I hear them say, this is the best job I've ever had. <laughs> and it may be a commercial, you know, it may be a very quick thing that we do, but people always have fun and they enjoy, I guess, the feeling, the way that we get along, the way that we uh, create there's always a challenge, which I think is exciting for people. You know, there's always some sort of new thing that has to be created or designed or figured out how we're going to shoot it because of the nature of the puppets. So it's not only, I think, a fun challenge for them, but also just a, a lot of fun. And, and I believe that that's what Jim enjoyed most. He loved working hard, creating and having fun. And what is Frank Oz meant to you and to the Muppets? Frank is just basically annoying. <laughs> he just annoys he, he annoys everyone. <laughs> I've had enough. It's been 27 years. Mm. Do you think you could stand Frank Oz for 27 <laughs> years? It's not easy. <laughs> he seems like such a sweetheart. I have. <laughs> oh my god. He's he's amazing. And and certainly I've learned a lot from Frank. I think this is kind of funny. I don't, I just, it's, I don't know why this popped into my head, but there's a Muppet performer named Kevin Clash. He originated Elmo. Elmo. Right, right. Yes. Great, great Muppet performer. Great person. He said to me once, this is maybe 10 years ago, he said, he said, Bill, if Jim and Frank had a baby, it would have been you. <laughs> <laughs> and what a compliment that is for me, you know, as a kid watching Jim and Frank, one of the greatest comedy teams I knew back then, there's just so much to learn from them, so much to to gain and, and learn and observe. And we just, I don't know, I just love Frank. You know, he's, he's a, a wonderful guy. We laugh all the time. We try to make each other laugh all the time. And I think that's what friendships are. And just finally, before I let you go, what are you working on now? Uh, well, I finished a film with Melissa McCarthy, uh, directed by Brian Henson, called The Happy Time Murders, uh, which comes out in August. So that's in post-production right now. Are you working with puppets in that one? or are you? Yes, it's a, actually a puppet people-filled world. I play a character named Phil Phillips. He's a private investigator. Um, he's a puppet. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to solve some murders and he's teamed up with his ex-police force partner, Melissa McCarthy, and they have to figure out these crimes. And I won't give anything away, but that's basically what the film is about. It's a lot of fun. It's rated R, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun to make. We had a great time making it. And then other than that, I'm always trying to develop other Muppet projects. We're doing... Um, the Muppets are going to be at the O2 Arena in London uh, oh. in July. We're doing a live live show uh, at the O2 Arena. Um, so you should come. Oh, yes. I'd love to. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much for taking your time. This is fascinating and for the documentary and everything, really. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. It's lovely talking to you. 
Thank you very much to Bill Beretta. The documentary Muppet Guys Talking can be purchased exclusively on the website MuppetGuysTalking.com. Don't miss this pop cultural gem. I really recommend it. And thank you so much for joining us this week on Pop Culture Confidential. You can follow us on Instagram and send us your thoughts about the show on Twitter at PodPopCulture. And make sure to join us next week. This is Pop Culture Confidential, only on Spotify. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.